So today we conclude our series called Satisfied. We've spent the last few weeks considering what it means to have our body and our soul. So all that we are in Christ truly satisfied. And we have seen that everything else that this world has to offer may give us a short and fleeting satisfaction, but it evaporates, it dissipates, and what is just left is that same hunger. And so we talked about this last week, how Jesus said that he is the bread of life, and anyone that comes to him will not hunger or thirst. And how only Jesus can truly transform our hearts and leave us mind and body at peace and satisfied. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So Jesus offers us rest, our souls that can be so restless. Not about you, but man, this world that we live in that just demands and pushes and pulls at us, and we can feel like we're pulled in every single direction, and man, our souls just need rest. And that's what Jesus says, come to me, and I will give you rest. And so today, as we wrap up and you conclude this series on focusing on being satisfied, in some ways, it's never going to finish because every single week, that's the message, is how we're satisfied in Christ. And so I've, I've heard it said this way, that being, being a preacher in a church where everyone knows you and it's the same basic people week in, week out, is so much harder than speaking at a conference. Because if you're a big conference speaker, every time you show up, it's a new crowd and they haven't heard your jokes and they don't know your same themes. And so it's much harder to preach to the same people every single week. And so I believe that it requires great courage to preach the exact same message every single week without preaching the exact same message every single week. I don't know if that makes sense to you or not. But it's the same message of Jesus and how he satisfies the gospel. So it's the exact same message every single week, and yet do so in a way that is from different parts of the Bible where it's new and it's fresh, and we can hear a fresh word from the Lord and come to the Lord's table on a Sunday morning and be full and not leave hungry. And so this idea of being satisfied, yes, today we wrap up the series, but this is every single day. Our souls need to be satisfied in Christ. And so as we wrap this up, this focus, though, we're talking about prayer, and specifically talking about audacious prayer. You're thinking, well, what does the word audacious mean? So I'm talking about audacious prayer. What I mean is bold prayer. I mean confidence. I'm not talking about approaching God timidly or nervously or being afraid. No, we shouldn't be timid the Bible describes, and we'll see this morning, on how God wants us to approach him with this audacity. Because if we think about it, who are we that we could approach the king of heaven and have a hearing with him? And yet, we'll see this morning that God wants us to come. And he wants us to pray and to have this 
audacious prayer, a fearless and a brave prayer. This is how God wants us to approach him. But let's first define our terms. And so what exactly is prayer? Because we can have different ideas, but let's just make sure that we're all on the same page. And so prayer is, at its essence, it's communication with God. That's what it is. It's talking to God, but it's also listening to him. And so it's not just a one-way road. It's, it's not like when I'm trying to watch a game and my wife wants to talk to me and that becomes a one-way conversation. Amen? Men? No? Is, is it just me? Where maybe this week you're watching the Astros on game five and you're wondering, are they even going to pull it out? Are they going to choke in the first round? I know our associate, Pastor Colton, is a big Astros fan. I'm not sure if he prayed or not for the Astros, but God heard his prayer and, but I can imagine if Katie, who leads worship for us, if she tried to talk to Colton when he's watching the Astros, probably wouldn't go very far. It would end being, again, a one-way conversation. That is not communication, men, for the record. If your wife has to talk, turn off the game. Yes. Amen, Amen sisters. What's more important, watching that game, that win or lose, is not going to actually impact your life. It really won't. Or connecting with your girl, with your wife. Like, I hate to say it, but connecting with her is way more important. And it requires going both ways. It requires listening and talking. It has to be both. And so prayer is us connecting with God. It's a communication with God that goes both ways, that we are talking to him. And yet when you sit there quietly, and that's a problem in our world today. We don't sit quietly long enough. We get in the car, turn on the radio. We get home, turn on the TV. We always want noise, and it distracts us, and we need to just sit still. And know that he is God. Sit still long enough to hear the voice of God, to hear his spirit speaking to us, prompting us, confirming what we're reading in the word, in this living relationship. Prayer is a beautiful, mysterious. There is mystery to this. Let's just be honest. But it's real. And it goes both ways. So we need to be people of prayer. You know, we have a God that has a plan. God is not a God who is acting randomly, but he is a God that has a purpose, and he has a specific plan for all of human history, but that includes your life. He has a plan for you. And prayer is at the center of God's plan for you. Prayer is the means that God uses to accomplish his purposes. We'll look at that later on this morning, but just here up front to set the context for us. Prayer is the way that God accomplishes his purposes. So it is at the center of God's plan. I want to give you two words this morning. I try to keep it simple. So God's purpose in prayer, two words that will summarize God's purpose for prayer. The first word is communion. Now, we just minutes ago as a faith family partook of communion of the Lord's table. And that is a picture of of our relationship with God and with each other that we approach the table with harmony. And so that's the reason why we call it communion, because we commune with God, but with each other. 
And so the, the first key word here is communion that describes God's purpose in prayer. Let me read this to you out of the book of Philippians chapter 4 and see how God's purpose of being close to his people is accomplished through prayer. Philippians 4, being verses 4 through 7, just that one paragraph. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I love verse 4. The Bible flat out says, rejoice. It doesn't give you the option. It doesn't give you a suggestion. This is a command. It says, be happy. Find your joy. Rejoice in what? In the things of this world that it has to offer? No. Rejoice in the Lord. And he says it again. Second time. Again, I say, rejoice. This is reminding us that we find our hope, our purpose, our true joy that will actually satisfy your soul in God. You will not find it anywhere else. You can look, and it'll leave you hungry. It'll leave you empty and wanting more. So the Bible here is clear on rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. We were made by God, and we were made for God. Maybe you're thinking, well, how? How do I do that? Maybe here, here this morning, you're thinking, you know, I would actually like to change. I want to rejoice in the Lord. I want to have this joy deep inside of me found in Jesus. How do I do this, having this real joy and this peace? Well, verse 5 continues, and it says, the Lord is at hand. So this language here where you see it says at hand, it's describing that God is near. He says, rejoice, because God is near. God is not just up there, out there. I think sometimes people think of God as being this cosmic creator, and he is, but he's also at hand. He's also close by and near. And he's nearer than you probably could ever imagine. His presence is right here with us in this room through his spirit. And we're seeing here that he is near so we can experience the actual presence of God. And what does it do? It says, let your, says, reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, some of your translations may have the word gentleness. And the reason why is those two words in the original language are pretty much the same word. And it really makes sense because if someone is reasonable, then they're probably a gentle person. If someone is unreasonable, how gentle are they? Not very gentle. So to be reasonable and to be gentle really go hand in hand. And so that's why you see here it says, let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone, that everyone can see it, that your life just overflows with gentleness. How many of you can say that? Don't raise your hand. Probably some of you could say, oh man, pastor, even if you ask for a show of hands, 
I could not in good conscience raise my hand. Maybe if my wife was here, I could pull it off. But if my wife is here, then, man, I'm sunk. Like, I can't raise my hand because she'll wrap me out. Are we marked by gentleness? Are we a gentle, kind, fair, loving, reasonable people? This is what it's describing. Let this be known to everyone. And then verse 6 says, don't be anxious. Maybe you're thinking, oh, I was good talking about the, the not being gentle. But now, now maybe you feel a little bit less confident when the next verse says, oh, and don't be anxious. Now that probably covers all of us. Because any one of us can struggle with anxiety, with fear of the future, living out tomorrow, today, and afraid of what might happen. So he says, be anxious for nothing. So this anxiety and this fear, this worry, and this harshness, all of that evaporates in the presence of God. That's what happens to someone when they come face to face with God, when the heavens open to that person and they receive the eyes of faith and they see Jesus and he is no longer just a religious thing that people kind of do on Sundays by their societal obligation. And it's not just nominal Christianity, but it's a real encounter with the living God. In the face of Jesus, anxiety and fear and harshness just evaporate. God is near. It says that he's at hand. Maybe you're thinking, Pastor, that sounds so great, but man, it just seems so unattainable. It seems so impossible. You don't know my life. It's hard. I don't know. But God does. God knows every single detail, all of your past, your trauma, disappointments, your fears, your insecurities, your your private sins, all of it. Every single struggle and fear that you have in your heart and in your mind, your God knows and he cares. And he wants you to know that he's at hand, that he is near, and he wants to come close. And prayer is the avenue. Look at this progression of thought. Let's just follow it. He says, find your joy, like real joy in God. And then he says, by experiencing his presence, God who is at hand, he says, which will then change your heart. You can't change it yourself. You can't make yourself be gentle or make yourself not be anxious. But what you see is when you know that God is at hand, when you experience his presence, then he changes your heart. And you're no longer an angry person. And you're no longer an anxious person. But instead, you are gentle and kind and self-controlled. And then, how does this happen? Continue with progression of thought. Verse 6. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. How does all this happen? How does does God change our hearts? Prayer. The presence of God. Because prayer is experiencing God personally. He changes us. It's his spirit that actually changes us. And the avenue that he does it, his power is released in our lives through 
prayer. Jesus himself changes everything in a prayer, just puts us in the posture, puts us in the flow of experiencing God's blessings, his healing, his freedom, his transformation. And verse 7 describes this beautifully. It describes the result of having this communion with God and the peace of God. Do you want that today? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. So this goes beyond human reason. This goes beyond science. If we would put you under an MRI, we wouldn't be able to see these things. These are deeply spiritual, but it's part of who you are. It goes beyond normal human reasoning. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a picture of someone who is living in God's presence through prayer, and their soul is healthy and at rest. Is that what you want today? That's what I want. But I've just noticed along the years that many people that attend church services, the reality is that they have a faith in God that is very intellectual or very academic. And they think about God only as a body of knowledge or a religious duty, and it doesn't affect their actual, as we just read, hearts and minds. It's just an intellectual thing. But prayer is going beyond the intellectual faith in God into actually experiencing God himself, experiencing the presence of God. That's what prayer does. We connect with him in a much deeper way, and then we're at rest. We have the peace of God, and we're satisfied. When I look at these verses, and I look at describing peace of God and praying and being gentle and not being anxious. Man, these verses just kind of summarize what I pray becomes and is becoming by faith. I believe this, the renewal church culture. Because every single church has a culture. And I pray that we will have a church culture that there is gentleness that we have a church culture where we know that you can come and if you're a guest, that we will welcome you and I don't care what you've done or where you've been or what's happened to you or how messed up life has been or how hard life has been or how far you think you are. You are not too far from the reach of God and you are not too far or too far gone or too messed up for this church to love you and to welcome you in. You are not too far. You are not too messed up. This is going to be a praying church. May we pray at home with our kids. May we pray in our home groups, in our discipleship groups. May we come here with this spirit of prayer, of connecting with God and wanting to welcome people in. And when someone hurts us, I didn't say if. You hear that? I said when. We're human. We don't do it on purpose, but it happens. When we get crossways, we'll fight for those friendships, and we'll forgive, and we'll restore. 
and we'll continue to have harmony. And we'll continue to let our gentleness be known to everyone. May this be what Renewal Church is about. May that be our culture. Let's keep reading about communion with God through prayer in Matthew chapter 6. This is the words of Jesus describing prayer. So Matthew chapter 6, we'll read verses 5 through 8. And when you pray, here's the assumption for believers, not if, he says when. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Prayer is not a performance. You hear this? Prayer is not a performance. It's not a religious ritual. Prayer is not a way where you think that you can have an incantation or a spell that if you say the magic abracadabra words and you rub the genie just the right way, then it comes out of the lamp and now God, genie, says, your wishes is my command. What do you want me to give you? Oh, you want the Cowboys to win the Super Bowl? Sorry, I can't do that. It looked good early on. Now I don't know. But how about them Cowboys? It's been kind of painful. Because, I mean, quite honestly, that's so funny because there are people in other cities rooting against the Cowboys, and God loves them too. So I don't know that God is all that concerned on who wins on Sunday. I think it's concerned on our hearts and how we respond to winning or losing. That might actually matter. But we think that God exists to bend his will to ours. We think that if we pray, we can then manipulate God and say, God, I said the right words. I prayed. You didn't pull through. What gives? You're my genie. I said... Do this, God, and I prayed, and you didn't come through. How dare you? And we curse him, and we get angry at him. Or maybe we try to use prayer as a way to show how great we are, but we don't actually pray in private. We only pray in public. Um, Jesus, I'll say about that. Jesus was not very impressed with those who pray in public and yet don't pray Private. Prayer is not a ritual or performance or a way to manipulate God. Prayer is encountering the resurrected Jesus. Prayer is communicating, connecting with, enjoying God himself. Prayer is not so much about what you get from God. Prayer is getting more of God. That's what prayer is. Because quite honestly, what else is going to satisfy? 
What other well will you drink from? What else could God offer you than himself? He offers you the best. Himself, living water and bread of life. This is what prayer is. Prayer is experiencing his presence. And so let's, let's continue thinking about this. We don't have to turn the back. I just want to just talk briefly about John 15. John 15 is a beautiful text. It describes Jesus as being the vine and we are the branches. We must be connected into the vine in order for us to have vitality and to have life. And so here's what Jesus says in John 15. He says, abide in me and I in you. Jesus didn't say, work hard, get your life together, be a good Christian. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say any of that. He said, abide in me, and I will abide in you. We will continue in this heart-to-heart, intimate, real life-giving relationship. Just come to me. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, my father has loved me, so I have loved You abide in my love. Continue in it. Enjoy it. Revel in it with your eyes of faith. See me. And as you pray, you experience his actual presence. This is life changing. And Jesus ends in verse 11, again, John 15. He says, these things that have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. You hear that? My joy will be in you, and that you, that your joy may be full. Not empty, not half full, overflowing full, that my joy will make you full. And so prayer is this beautiful means in which we experience joy in Christ as we experience more of him. And so we sit quietly with our God, and we hear his voice. God's purpose for prayer, number one, is communion. Prayer as a means to enjoying God. Number two, prayer is about kingdom. It's about communion, and it's about kingdom. We just read in Matthew 6, verses 8 and following. Let's pick it up um, with Matthew 6, verse 9. This is something called the Lord's Prayer. This is Jesus' model prayer. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, they, your heavenly Father will also Forgive you, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The point of the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, is not to give us a prayer to repeat every single day or week or however often, just mindlessly 
just saying it. That isn't the point. Now, there's nothing wrong in, in praying the Lord's Prayer. It's a good thing to do. But the point that Jesus did in giving this to us was for us to have a template, to have a pattern, a model to follow. And this week in our home groups, we're going to be looking at this, and we'll be looking at how to follow this template with the P-R-A-Y, the PRAY acronym. P stands for praise, R stands for repent, A stands for ask, and Y is yield. So you praise, repent, ask for your needs, and yield to his kingdom, to his will. And so we'll be talking about that in our groups this week. And so I encourage you, if you're not in a home group, then you want to be in one. We can share life together and be real and go deeper and pray together and use the Lord's Prayer as a model to show us and teach us how to pray. That's what this is. The first half, Jesus is talking about his glory, his kingdom, hallowed be your name. He says, forgive us our, well, first he says, how be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The first half, verse 9 and 10, is about God's kingdom, his glory. The second half, verses 11 through 13, describes our needs. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we forgive others that have sinned against us, and deliver us from evil, help us to not be tempted to sin. So the first half is about God's glory, second half is about our needs. And so what you're seeing with the Lord's prayer is making it clear that what we need most is Him. And prayer is expressing a dependence on God. We pray, your kingdom come. May your light shine here in my life. May I willingly, may I want to. Like, may I with joy submit to God's kingdom and live for his glory and not be rebelling against his glory, against his kingdom. But may I willingly, gladly submit and find my joy in his glory and in his purposes. So we don't make a list of things that we think, okay, I got this, and now God, you took care of that. It doesn't work that way. We need God for all of it. and depend on him for everything in our lives. So when we don't pray, what we're showing is that we're not depending on God, and we're not living for his kingdom. Let me give you just briefly two views as I think about this on why maybe we don't pray. Like what causes us at times to not pray? Because if praying is enjoying God and wanting his kingdom to come, if praying is submitting to his will and wanting the things that God wants, then why do we not pray? Why sometimes do we, well, let's just be honest, why do all of us, me too, why do all of us as humans struggle with prayer? Here's one reason why I I believe like a wrong view of God that leads us to not pray is that we believe that God doesn't really care about what's happening in our lives. We can believe that God is out there and he's taking care of all of the important things in the universe, but me and my problems, I feel like I'm going to be that kid going to his dad who's always at work and always busy. And you say, dad, can we go play? Can we go toss the ball around? And dad's always like, no, I'm too busy working. And we feel that rejection. And, And we think, 
of God as being a father that's just too busy or disengaged or not interested in you. And he doesn't really care about what's happening in your life. And so therefore, you don't pray. You don't, you don't approach him. Let me read to you Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. And this is what I was reading when God gave me this idea of, of having audacious prayer. Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And one who seeks finds. Are you seeking God? Are you seek him? You will find him. He says, the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? See, God has a purpose. And everything that we ask is designed to be to draw us closer to him. But we can want other things more than we want God. And those things will destroy us and not satisfy us. So sometimes God, being a good father, tells his children, no. But oftentimes children don't like their father saying no. And so we rebel. But the whole point is that God is at work and he is working all things for good in your life. Even those hard, undesirable things, God has a purpose in them and he's giving you good gifts and he's giving you primarily himself as the ultimate good gift. And so if we will ask and seek for him, he will answer every single time. He has a bigger purpose in your life than just giving you fleeting pleasures. He wants more for you. He wants you fully alive in his presence and living a life filled with purpose where you're on mission for him. And so we can think that God isn't interested, but Matthew 7 says, yes, he is. He loves you. God is not holding out on you. He's not. We trust him. And we keep pleading with him and drawing near to him in prayer with faith, believing that he does care as we just read. He gives his children good gifts. A second, I think, wrong view that can lead us to not pray is that we can think that God doesn't have the power to actually fix anything in our lives. We think either he doesn't care or he's not strong enough and he's not able to. And I don't have time to get into all the implications, the problem of evil, but I want to talk about it just very briefly. There are a lot of people that struggle with this because they might think, okay, you say God is good, but there's so much pain and suffering in this world. If God is so good, why is he allowing all of the pain and suffering in this world? And if God is all-powerful like the Bible claims he is, then why doesn't he get off of his backside and do something about it? Why does God allow so much evil? If he's good and he's powerful, then he should do something about it. So either God is not good or he's not powerful or he doesn't exist at all. This is a very common view. I've talked to many people about this. And again, this is a long conversation. I would rather have it over coffee. Like, I would much rather sit with you. And if you're struggling with this, let's get together. I love coffee. 
Coffee makes everything better. It's kind of like bacon. You add bacon, it makes it good. Like whatever you're eating, it makes it better. Coffee's like that too. Let's do that. If you're struggling with this, I would love to sit with you and just hear you out and just talk through this with you, hear where you're, where you're coming from, what pain you've experienced, and what your thoughts are on this. But here, together, just here briefly, we have a God that in the Bible describes to us how this world became so messed up, how this world got to be where there is pain and suffering. The Bible does not deny the existence of pain or suffering. The Bible acknowledges it. No, there are religions that say it's not real. It's just, it's just an illusion. But the Bible does not say that. The Bible says it's not an illusion. It's real. There's real pain. There's real suffering. It doesn't hide it or deny it. But it explains how it happened. It tells us that God made us originally good with no pain or evil or suffering. And yet it was humans that rebelled against God and handed over our ruling authority over to the serpent, Satan, who is now ruling over this world. And his reign is marked by death and disease, divorce, destruction. So what you see in our world is a result of human rebellion and satanic influence, where the world now has very real pain and suffering. But what we also see is this God that was not to blame for it, we are, took the pain on himself. God took the suffering that we deserved. We did this. We corrupted it, not God. And yet God came into this broken, painful world. He was scorned and spit and crucified and shamed. And he died on the cross for you and me. And we have a God who suffered, who endured our suffering and our pain. And then he died. To pay the price that we deserve. And on the third day he was resurrected and is alive today. Has defeated the grave and Satan and sin. And takes away our shame. And we know that one day every wrong will be made right. Every hurt will be healed. Every injustice will be paid for. This is the truth of the gospel. That we will be in heaven one day when there will be no more pain. And we will see the earth the way God originally intended it. Which is good and holy. Joy in his presence with no more pain or suffering. So when you look to the cross. Can I explain to you exactly why you've had the pain that you've experienced? No. I'm really sorry. I wish I could. I can't explain why. There's no answer for the whys. But when I look to the cross, what I do know is that God took care of it. That God didn't ignore it. That he defeated it. And there is redemption. And there is hope. And there is purpose. And there is healing. And there is freedom. And my heart hurts. I look across this room and I know, I know most of you. And there's a lot of pain in this room. And I, and I don't say that because I don't know. But I'm honest with you, it's been a hard few weeks. Um, 
Sometimes it gets heavy when loved ones lose their loved ones or when you, when you get into the messes of people that are struggling with health or the kids or their marriage or, or the list goes on. And I love this church. I love you. And my heart hurts when yours hurts. But even more than my heart hurting, God's heart hurts and he loves you. And he enters into your pain, which is why Jesus came and died on the cross. There is hope. God does care. He is powerful. And he uses us to be these agents of renewal to Bill County and the world. He has a plan, and the cross proves it. And our prayer allows us to, to channel that power and the, being in the presence of God because it is prayer that releases his power. And so we just read this a few minutes ago. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. May we be a church that prays, that hears his voice, that every day we are a people that are in prayer, believing the truth and not believing the lies of the enemy but believing the truth of the gospel of who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross and that we have this privilege of praying. It is a beautiful privilege. May we be bold. May we be people that pray audaciously, praying that husbands will be men of God and women will be women of God, and that we will have children that will grow up to be the same. May we boldly believe that God can set the captives free and heal the broken and give us the joy that Jesus promises. Because he is able.